This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast. Well, the Virginia statewide races certainly had some unexpected results. And the political angles, there are almost too many to number, but hidden among those many political angles are there some religious angles. Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. He is author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion. He's also founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. I had not. Had you heard of Winsome Sears, Virginia's lieutenant governor-elect, before last night or this morning? I have to admit that I had not. I had not been paying close attention to this election, in large part because I assumed Glenn Youngkin would lose. I, I have to admit I kind of set this thing aside on the back burner, and also I fell prey to the media template for this thing, that this was essentially the Trump Republican Party running against a mainstream Democrat, I didn't, because it wasn't in the media I was consuming, I didn't know about Yunkin's efforts to stay away from Trump, to kind of honor some of the concerns of the Trump voters. And I'd not seen him on TV talking or answering questions, so I didn't know kind of about his intelligence and smoothness. And above all, I mean, there is zero stylistic comparison between this man and Donald Trump, you know, in terms of style and how he handles himself, how he handles questions, how he handles other people. So because of that, I knew nothing about the rest of the ticket. And when when you throw in Winsome Sears and Jason I, pr- I don't speak Spanish, but I'm going to try to this name. Mayares is how I assume that is pronounced. Jason Mayares, an attorney general. That's an incredibly symbolic ticket. A, you know, a white outsider with a major, if you know her history in the state, a major African-American figure among Republicans in the state of Virginia and then you have this Latino guy running for attorney general, the top three positions in the state. I would have thought that I would have seen coverage of that in a time when we're assuming that race and ethnicity is at the heart of every single discussion in American life. So then I wake up this morning, you know, I followed, I'll admit it, I watched the World Series last night while flipping back and forth between that and the political coverage. And I woke up this morning having heard Winsome Sears' name for the first time and have heard one or two references to Jason Meares. But then I'm going through my email and I come across a news bulletin, a, a piece from the always interesting site, A Journey Through New York City Religions which is a site that a lot of religion writers have bookmarked. 
And in this piece, I am stunned to read about the religious backgrounds of these three and the degree that the strong role that religion plays, especially in the lives of Glenn Yonkin and Winsome Sears. I still don't know that much at this point about Jason Miara's other than what I read in this piece. I mean, and the key, you know, I've spent a dozen years in Anglicanism, and I know a little bit about some of the trends and movements within Anglicanism, to say the least. And so I was just, you know, (laughs) I was amazed to discover that this man just wasn't a churchgoer, This was a guy who had, he's considerably wealthy, this was a guy who had built a alternative Anglican church, essentially helped build it on his own. And I also didn't know that in his background, while living in the United Kingdom, he had served on the executive committee of Holy Trinity Brompton, which is the home church of the Alpha Course. Now, have you ever heard of the Alpha Course? Oh, yes, indeed. Okay, very famous, but it originated among evangelical Anglicans and Charismatics, and it, frankly, is a person-to-person evangelism movement that has played a massive role in the growth of Anglicanism in Africa and Asia and in other parts of the world. And I would also say it's at the heart of whatever renewal remains in the UK and to some degree in the United States. For a man to have been a major leader in Alpha, this means his faith is way beyond standard equipment. Let's put it this way. It's not just a carry your Bible on Sunday morning sort of thing. It's a major part of his makeup, if you know anything about that movement. Well, there's a huge connection. Then you flip down to Winsome Sears, and all of a sudden you have this woman coming, you know, an immigrant from Jamaica. You have her in the middle of her adult life kind of making an effort. She comes to America, joins the Marines, comes back out, and she and her husband decide to try to pull their lives together at that point. And... Several things happen in an order that I haven't quite figured out exactly what and where. She goes to Regent University. She does a master's degree. She applies to law school. She gets active in Virginia politics. And somewhere in there, she joins or becomes very active in the Salvation Army, all the way to the point of leading a ministry for the homeless. And when you read interviews with her in religious publications, she makes it very clear that this is when she pulls her life together. She told a CBN reporter at Christian Broadcast Network, linked, of course, to um, Pat Robertson and to Regent University. She says basically that she and her husband wanted to be disciplined. They wanted to get their life together. And from there on out in her interviews, when she addresses these subjects, she does so in extremely strong Christian religious language. And I don't know how you avoid talking about this. Now, I want to give some credit to the Washington Post in a piece about her 
a couple of weeks ago, pre-election, kind of a standard pre-election piece. It's a long feature, and the strength of her Christian faith and the role of that in her life makes it all the way into the third paragraph, which is pretty high. And you, you have some good material in here. There's one point in the story where it veers over into pretty standard critical race theory language where she's fighting this, they're sounding racial dog whistles and all that. And we all know, of course, that critical race theory is not being taught in Virginia schools, even though it's on websites for the school districts as a part of assessment and recommended reading and all this other stuff. And even though we have anecdotal accounts from parents, you know, who are upset about what's coming home, you know, in terms of what their children say they're learning, the Washington Post offers a pretty standard critical race theory summary right there, and then goes back to telling her story. Now, let me stress something here. You and I have talked before about one of the biggest questions in media discussions of critical race theory is linked to what the black church, and there are, of course, all kinds of black churches. That's not a unified force. There are liberal mainline black churches. There are evangelical and Baptist black churches, and then there are many, many charismatic and Pentecostal black churches. And the viewpoints in those groups are as diverse as you would expect among any religious group that are that large. But I've yet to see a story, maybe it's my fault, I haven't dug enough, but trust me, I've tried. Have you ever seen a story explaining what the black church thinks about critical race theory? I don't think I... I mean, I've seen individual people via social media, yeah. black pastors and things like this, express opinions, but I've never seen anyone dig into it. And what I have seen, and if you ever got it down to pew level, that's where, to be blunt about it, it really matters politically. Pew level among blacks, Latinos, and others on these issues. What I've seen is black leaders accepting the importance of parts of critical race theory, while simultaneously negatively critiquing it in terms of it being a totally secular system that doesn't seem to want to discuss issues of sin and the brokenness of mankind and all kinds of things that, quite frankly, show up a lot in discussions of race in the civil rights movement and especially in the preaching of Martin Luther King Jr., which you know you and I were talking about the other day. If a state tried to create a curriculum for race discussions and racial reconciliation and the problems of racism and their systemic nature in our culture, I'm assuming at this point that if you came up with a curriculum based on the words and thoughts and beliefs of Martin Luther King Jr., that most public schools in America today would reject it, in part because it would be saturated in Christian language. And also, one of the major themes in his work was calling America back to its better angels, to put it you know, in religious language, saying that America on racial issues 
has veered away from the strong beliefs of its founding and the potential of its founding, the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and all that. Well, in other words, Martin Luther King is saying America needs to return to its roots when even though those roots were flawed and racism was there and slavery was there, when you look at the best of what America offered in its founding, that is what black people want from their nation. Well, that's a very problematic message today in that so much of the current CRT establishment has put so much effort into critiquing the founders negatively and saying the true founding of America is invalid or beyond flawed. It's actually evil at times and saturated in racism that must be, and it all must be torn down. And you can get into discussions of the patriarchal family and all kinds of educational standards. And at that point, you're into a very complicated discussion of critical race theory. My point is that if we want to understand what's happening, at some point they're going to need to talk to the black church, and they're going to need to talk to black Christians. And in this CRT section of this Washington Post story, did anybody, I mean, I assume they're interviewing her face-to-face and they know quite a bit about her, did anyone stop and say to Winston Sears, what would you like to see taught in Virginia schools? about race. And this is a woman who's been on national level educational panels for, you know, the Bush administration and they're in the state. She has a education is a strong part of her history and her identity. I'm looking forward in the next couple of weeks, I hope someone asks this woman as as well obviously as Glenn Youngkin. Someone needs to ask them, what do you want to see taught? in Virginia schools about the horrors of racism and its role in our culture. I'll bet you they actually have some things to say. Wouldn't it help to know something about that? Terry, did you find it intriguing that the New York Times dropped the term Anglican from its description of Youngkin's evangelical Anglican church? Well, of course, it's it's almost funny. I have to admit that when I read the classic presentations of this guy, I assumed he was probably a a megachurch evangelical sort of guy, uh, and that I assumed that was the background that if you know if Republicans were going to be religious in this age of the GOP, that that's probably where he was. And I think that's what the New York Times wanted to portray by you know t- giving the name of Holy Trinity Church. You know, and let me see if I can find the actual language for you. Let me just read the two paragraphs. This is the religion part of a major piece about Yunkin. A private foundation that the Yunkins establish owns property in McLean that is the site of Holy Trinity Church, an independent evangelical congregation that Mr. Yunkin first founded in his basement, and a 358-acre farm in Middleburg horse country that serves as a Christian retreat center. In interviews, Youngkin has explained it was Suzanne who had made him a regular churchgoer, insisting that faith be central to their marriage. Okay, let's back up for a second and think about the fact that we know this guy was a leader in a major evangelism and Episcopal movement 
global level movement within Episcopalians and Anglicans. The fact that something started in his basement, I hear that and I immediately think, okay, it's a house church. He started a house church. The house church grew into a mission. The mission grew into Holy Trinity Church, the actual name of which, which is not in the New York Times piece, is Holy Trinity Anglican Church, which, of course, means it's one of these independent, more conservative, or not independent. It's independent from the Episcopal establishment. It's a part of an alternative Anglican body, which means they have bishops that are probably in Africa, maybe Asia, and then there are bishops that have been consecrated here in the United States to lead them. We don't know which of the various Anglican bodies he's a part of, but it's important. And once again, it points to the overlooked emphasis on religion earlier in his life and in his training and the fact that he was so, I mean, he was a part of an intensely religious movement with the Alpha course. It's it's a huge part of his life, and the, it's just dropped. And we're supposed to think he's a run-of-the-mill evangelical, which he in some ways may be, but the word Anglican still would have complicated things. So it got left out. It is being reported that among Virginia voters for whom abortion was the leading issue, that's about 5% of them, Yunkin led McAuliffe by 12%. Is this a religion angle, especially given the fact that McAuliffe hammered Yunkin on his pro-life stance during the run-up to it, the election? It certainly is, and I, frankly, I was stunned You know that the, uh, the margin wasn't stronger than that. Uh, obviously, this was a race where other issues came along, and while abortion, and I, I've read some very strong materials about the election from Democrats for life who were just furious with the Democrat campaign and the fact that they believe— he gave away any potential to reach moderate Democrats and Republicans and independents, most importantly, with his stance on abortion. So, no, that doesn't surprise me at all. I'm also really intrigued with the fact that he won the Latino vote. Now, stop and think about that for a second. The Republican candidate, one year after a, a Trump candidacy, the Republican won the Latino vote in Virginia. Have you seen that as well? Is that something I've got that right? Yes, I think the percentage was upwards of 50%. Yeah, 56%, something like that. I mean, so you and I, for at least five years, have been talking about this incredible religion story that's emerging in American politics with the rise of the evangelical and Pentecostal Latino voters and their importance, especially, I mean, Donald Trump would have never reached the White House without Latino voters in Florida. I think we can now say Yunkin would not have won last night without Latino, evangelical, Pentecostal, and don't forget the charismatic Catholics and traditional Catholics in the Latino community. And, of course, you have down the ballot on the third stage, you have an attorney general-elect now who is a Latino Christian and attends an Episcopal church, not an Anglican, an Episcopal church, is very evangelical-leaning and has a long history of playing a role in debates about social issues over sexuality and other doctrinal stands within the Episcopal church. 
So that's interesting, and I would have liked to have known that. But the big thing here for me is look at this ticket. Look at the importance going ahead in Republican life. If they can manage to avoid having, looking at this from my perspective, having Trump attached to them involuntarily by the press. Look at this ticket in Virginia. I mean, we have a Latino Episcopalian. We have a evangelical African-American from Jamaica who was a Marine. You have all of that interesting background, vice president of the Board of Education, all of this stuff. And then in the middle of her life is what looks like a kind of religious reawakening from her family, and she ends up running a ministry. Then at the top of the ticket, we have Yunkin with this fascinating connection to the Alpha Course, which means at one point in his life, you may as well say it, he was a lay minister of some kind in an Anglican context. I mean, you wouldn't have been one of the leaders of Alpha if you're not teaching evangelism and the Bible and all the other crucial parts of the Alpha movement and its content. That's a fascinating religious ticket. Yet next to that is very potent political realities. I mean, we're beginning to see a slight change in some voting patterns among African Americans, especially in certain parts of the country. And the more religious they are, the more they tend to be in play as independent voters or even some form of Republican. Then we look at this obvious Latino situation, you know, with evangelicals, Pentecostals, Catholics, and the, the changing Latino vote, which has, trust me, the Democrats know all about this at this point and are scared of it. What a fascinating story. And how do you tell the story of what happened in Virginia last night? and make it somehow about Trump versus Biden without looking at this fascinating religious makeup of this ticket and the history of these people. And then look at the shifts in the voting. Fascinating stuff. You can't take the religion out of it. Are you waiting for someone to write a story about how Youngkin is different from Trump, not only temperamentally, as you said before, yeah. but really spiritually? And if so, what would the focus of that story be? Wow, that would be that would be a very interesting story. And that takes you, of course, back to whether or I mean the big question, to what degree was Trump using the evangelical and especially Pentecostal leaders who surrounded him and gave him kind of his religious protection for four years while in office? Or do we look at kind of Trump the man? The, the man's tone deaf when it comes to talking about religion, whether that's his Bible references, which sometimes turn out strange, the whole thing with holding the Bible up in front of the church, during Episcopal church during the middle of a riot, and thinking that that was somehow going to appeal. to uh, It appealed to some evangelicals, but it certainly didn't appeal to all of them. That would get you into some explosive material about Trump and his private life and how his private life was viewed by a lot 
of evangelicals, black and white, I'm assuming Latino, then you would contrast that with how Yunkin handled himself in this campaign. I don't know the degree to which he talked about his faith because it's not in the coverage. Was that a part of his stump address? I mean, to his he now wants to talk about having more variety and more options in the world of education. Is he reaching out to Christian schools? Is he talking about testing the legality of vouchers to certain types of religious schools and alternative secular schools, homeschooling? Lots and lots of questions. And yes, I think that would be a valid story. But frankly, I'm trying to think of the reporter right now who would have the nerve to write it, especially since we've had the the setback for the religion beat of losing Emma Green from the Atlantic and her move over to the New Yorker, where she's primarily going to be writing about education. If that story was going to appear, Emma Green writing about it in the Atlantic would be one of the places I would have looked. With about a minute here, what religion angles do last night's election raise going into the 2022 midterms? Well, Latino vote has got to be huge. Obviously, the moral components of the debates about education, it's not just about race. It's also about gender. It's about pronouns. It's about confusion over bathrooms. It's about the impact of gender debates on sports. There are all kinds of other issues. But yes, I will say someone needs to come back to the issue of race and ask Republicans and ask religious Republicans, black, white, Latino, whatever, ask them, what do you think our schools should be saying about racism and its history in our culture? All of that's going to flow over uh, throw in COVID and all the other stuff, all of that's going to roll over into the elections in a year. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. He is author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thank you very much. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.